This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Democracy Now!, Dan Savage, Melissa Harris-Perry, the show about race, The Laura Flanders Show, All In with Chris Hayes, and The Young Turks. We begin today in Chicago, where for the first time in three decades, a police officer faces charges of first-degree murder for an on-duty shooting. White police officer Jason Van Dyke was arrested on Tuesday and is being held without bail for the killing of 17-year-old Laquan McDonald, uh, who was African-American. It was more than a year ago, on October 20th, 2014, when Officer Van Dyke shot the teenager 16 times, including multiple times in the back. Police claimed McDonald lunged at the officer with a small knife. But newly released dash cam footage showed the, the teenager walking away from the police officer's cars when another police car pulls up to the scene. The video, which has no sound, then appears to show Officer Jason Van Dyke pumping out of, uh, jumping out of the car, pointing his gun at McDonald and opening fire. The teenager's body spins as he is hit with the barrage of bullets, and then he falls to the pavement where he continues to be struck by bullets. This is Cook County State's Attorney Anita Alvarez uh, talking uh, after the indictment uh, about what happened at the scene. Our investigation has determined that Officer Van Dyke was on the scene for less than 30 seconds uh, before he started shooting. In addition to the fact that all evidence indicates that he began shooting approximately six seconds after getting out of his vehicle. Officer Van Dyke remained on paid desk duty after the shooting until he was taken into custody on Tuesday. In addition to the fatal shooting last October, Officer Van Dyke had at least 20 civilian complaints against him, which included excessive use of force, illegal arrest, and use of racial slurs. None of those complaints had led to any disciplinary action. This week, Chicago Police Superintendent Jerry McCarthy also announced he would move to fire Officer Dante Servan, who killed 22-year-old African-American woman named Rakia Boyd in 2012. Officer Servan was off-duty when he fired several shots over his shoulder into a group of people Boyd was standing with near his home, striking her in the back of her head. He was charged with involuntary manslaughter, making the first time in more than a decade that a Chicago police officer was charged for a fatal shooting. But last spring, in a dramatic dismissal, a judge acquitted Detective Servan on a legal technicality. Well, for more on the deaths of Laquan McDonald and Rakia Boyd, we're joined in Chicago by Barbara Ransby, professor of African-American studies, gender and women's studies and history at the University of Illinois, Chicago. We welcome you to Democracy Now!, Professor. 16 shots, 30 seconds, 400 days to indict the police officer for first-degree murder. All of those days he was paid. The number of officers at the scene, it's not clear exactly from the video. It's believed about seven in addition to Van Dyke. The number who came to Laquan McDonald's aid, none. Can you talk about the indictment yesterday just before the court-ordered video of the killing was released? 
Uh, yes. Well, thank you for having me, Amy, and for and for covering this issue. Um, yesterday, it was really after vigils and protests and lobbying and all kinds of pressure, uh, young people marching in the streets, that the city was forced to uh, to release the videotape. And uh, as you may have reported before, there was a, a tape in a local uh, a videotape in a local Burger King uh, that's still gone missing. So, um, so we got the da- dash cam uh, video, but. The time that it has taken for the city to come forward with this uh, is really pretty outrageous, and, and that's what activists in the city have been saying. That's what led to uh, thousands of people uh, protesting in the streets of Chicago last night. Still, a young man is uh, in custody uh, for those protests, and we're very concerned about him, Malcolm London, who is a young poet and activist here. Um, but um, I was so disturbed by that uh, videotape, uh, not that we haven't seen other other disturbing videotapes, but the amount of callous disregard for this uh, young man uh, laying in the street. Uh, the police shot him so quickly, so many times, uh, and the other police, as you just pointed out, did not do anything to see if he was even still alive, uh, kicking the, the um, knife out of his hand. And, you know, the thing that strikes me, uh, WBEZ, our Chicago Public Radio, just reported the other day, uh, because of the budget cuts in Illinois and, and, and other priorities, Chicago Police Department uh, only has less than 20 of its officers have received crisis intervention training. Now, it seems like that ought to be a priority for de-escalating this kind of situation. It seems that the police have a lot of training in how to contain protesters, uh, but very little training in something that would be quite common, uh, which is to de-escalate a situation where someone is intoxicated, uh, mentally ill, um, or otherwise behaving irrationally. We needed a non-lethal intervention there, clearly, uh, but it seemed to be almost too much trouble to do anything other than to shoot this child, uh, and that's why activists are so angry. And Professor Ramsey, I wanted to talk to you about the role of Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel, uh, because uh, clearly the mayor had said that he had not previously seen the video, uh, yet he uh, must have approved the $5 million settlement that, uh, that was given to the family earlier this year, even before uh, the family had filed a lawsuit. Well, absolutely. I mean, whether the mayor saw the video personally or not, someone in the mayor's office must have seen the video. They must have known uh, the likelihood that this this officer would be uh, found culpable of of murdering this child. Otherwise, that size of a settlement for a uh, cash-strapped city, as we're often told, uh, would not have been approved. Um, Of course, we would expect uh, a conscientious mayor to want to see uh, such a video um, of this kind of killing and uh, given the attention that uh police violence has gotten across the country and given the legitimate anger of many in the African-American community um, the question would be why didn't the mayor uh, see the video sooner um, and, and that you know, I think is a legitimate question. At a news conference on Tuesday the Chicago mayor Rahm Emanuel who was also President Obama's chief of staff before that said police officer Jason Van Dyke violated basic moral standards. Obviously in this case Jason Van Dyke violated both the standards of professionalism that comes with being a police officer, but also basic moral standards that bind our community together. Jason Van Dyke will be judged in the court of law. That's exactly how it should be. As of today, he's no longer being paid by the city of Chicago, as the superintendent just noted. 
and he was stripped of his police powers 10 months ago. Obviously, anyone that sees this video will also make their own judgments. So, Barbara Ransby, if you could explain the chronology here. I mean, we're talking about um, a killing that happened over 400 days ago. The city fights to suppress the video. They give $5 million to the family, though the family did not even sue. Uh, the court, based on a FOIA request by an independent journalist, orders the video to be released. They said today was the deadline for that release. And so yesterday, after 400 days, the entire leadership of Chicago gathers, the superintendent and the mayor, and they announce that Van Dyke, the officer, will be indicted for first-degree murder for his reprehensible actions. He had been on the payroll all of that time. And then, uh, as they left the stage, they released the videotape. How does Mayor Rahm Emanuel justify um, not having indicted, having uh, this officer indicted before? Well, that's an excellent question, and, and of course I can't answer that, but that would be my question as well. That was the question of the many, many activists who took to the streets uh, in Chicago last night. And, you know, when the mayor uh, and, and the state's attorney, Anita Alvarez, you know, tell us that they were saddened, outraged, disturbed uh, when they saw the video, I mean, it, it is really... Um, very little, very late. Um, you know, uh, Dr. King and others have 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 referred to the long uh, arc of justice. Uh, you know, and and that that long arm of justice bending slowly. This is a very very slow arrival at. Um, you know, a a remotely just outcome. I mean, the real just outcome would be to have a police department that was, in fact, accountable, uh, to have swift investigations and transparency, to make data available uh, to people without having uh, the kind of protests and lawsuits that, and, and pressures that have been uh, necessary heretofore. So, um, you know, I think it it really behooves the mayor to rethink um, the approach. It it, it is very legitimate that people are calling into question the leadership of, of Gary McCarthy, uh, the police chief in, in the city. Uh, so, you know, we understand the anxiousness, we understand the anger of young people uh, in the streets. I mean, this incident should not have happened, and if it should have happened, our leadership should have had a swift uh, and clear response, and that response should have been transparent. Uh, and in this case, by all indicators, it simply was not. white people. I'm one of those white people who had a knee-jerk, kind of defensive reaction when Black Lives Matter protesters shut down a Bernie Sanders rally here in Seattle, which was some weeks after they had interrupted a Bernie Sanders speech at Netroots Nation. And 
my reaction was, oh, my God, why are they attacking or interrupting or shutting down Bernie Sanders and not going after Jeb Bush or Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio or Donald Trump? And shortly after Black Lives Matter, protesters got in the face of Hillary Clinton, and I had the same sort of defensive white Democrat reaction. Like, why are they attacking the people who are on their side and not attacking the evil GOP shit stains who are there, who are our enemies, all of us, everyone on the planet. The GOP is the enemy of everyone on the fucking planet now with their obstructionism and denialism of climate change. But, yes, there are enemies, too, and the enemies of the Black Lives Matter movement, absolutely. And I just thought, why aren't they going after them? Why go after Bernie and Hillary? But then it wasn't long until even I came to my senses, even I saw the results of those actions when Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton pivoted from the usual platitudes and presumptions of Democratic politicians, where they would issue platitudes about racial equality and presume to have locked up the black vote and the votes of other people who give a shit about black lives, myself included. And then that would be it, some platitudes and a presumption. Platitudes, and I can presume to have locked down your vote. And what we saw coming out of Hillary and Bernie in the wake of these confrontations weren't just platitudes and presumption, but policy positions and promises that were not just promises of some sort of racially harmonious utopian future that they would help lead the way toward, but promises around policy change, things that they would do and do differently. And they brought both of them, brought people into their campaign from the movement. And that was a moment where I went, oh, yeah, right, this works. Getting in the faces of politicians, even people on your side, that shit works. And it worked and is working. And now, of course, you see really brave Black Lives Matter protesters all the time getting dragged out of and sometimes physically assaulted at Donald Trump rallies. So that thing that I had my knee-jerk, dumb fucking white guy reaction to when they first went after white guy Bernie Sanders around, go get the big guys who are really your enemies, they fucking are doing that now. Black Lives Matter protesters are going after the folks who are actively their enemies, not just passively their enemies, is often the case with white-ass Democrat politicians, but actively enemies as opposed to passive useless friends. Maybe not call them enemies. Passive use of friends as opposed to active enemies. And they're doing it. And you see it all the time. It's always on the news. Black Lives Matter protesters interrupting Donald Trump's speeches at great personal risk. Really putting themselves on the line. Some of them getting assaulted. And those assaults cheered on by Donald Trump, who is cruising to the Republican nomination, which is staggering and appalling. But that's not what I wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about the successes of the Black Lives Matter movement. I wanted to talk about my stupidity. At the onset here in Seattle, when I saw Bernie Sanders get interrupted, I take it back. Those thoughts I thought, things I didn't even write, things I didn't even say publicly, I thought them, but they were the wrong thoughts, and that movement proved me wrong and reminded me that even I am sometimes spectacularly wrong, right? Which brings us to Chicago. I hope that all of you are familiar with the shit that's been going down in Chicago with the police shooting, in the case of Laquan McDonald, an unarmed teenager, 16 times, burying the video, reeks of a cover-up, an enterprising, crusading reporter leverages that video out of the hands of the people covering it up, goes on the air, big national story, suddenly an indictment of this officer who pulled a gun on this teenager and killed him, shot him 16 times, and lied about it. 
And evidence appears to have been destroyed. Other officers were involved. Other officers misrepresented what they witnessed. Officers went into a nearby Burger King and had the manager erase a tape that might have had evidence on it of the shooting. And there are protests in Chicago. Protesters shut down Michigan Avenue. Black Lives Matter protesters, people protesting the shooting death of Laquan McDonald. And over Christmas, while we were away... Chicago cops responding to a domestic disturbance shot and killed a college student, African-American college student, who may have been having a problem with mental illness, unarmed, shot and killed him, and a bystander in the same building when they were called to a domestic violence dispute. And so the shit's hitting the fan in Chicago and needs to. And there's something happening in Chicago I think we should all be paying attention to. There is this movement to recall or force Mayor Rahm Emanuel to resign. Now, Rahm Emanuel was a really powerful member of Congress for a long time. He was Barack Obama's chief of staff for a long time. He is an Obama guy. Ran for mayor, got elected, ran for mayor again, got reelected, kind of by the skin of his teeth. It was a much tougher race than he expected it to be. And now, because of what looks like or has to be assumed his involvement in this cover-up of this police state, which he claims he didn't see until everybody else saw it, which strains credulity, there is this movement to force the resignation of Rahm Emanuel in Chicago. And I support that movement. That needs to fucking happen. Because police forces are not going to change until mayors and governors, presidents, but let's start with mayors, lose their fucking jobs. When it's not just some cop's job on the line, when police departments at an institutional level abuse their power and authority, but Obama's buddy Rahm Emanuel's job on the line, major elected officials' jobs on the line, if police departments cannot reform themselves and police themselves. And actually, as they say in Chicago, the Chicago Police Department's motto, if they actually cannot serve and protect the public, there needs to be accountability at the executive level, the mayor's ass needs to be on the line. And the mayor's ass is on the line in Chicago, where protesters are demanding his resignation, people are gathering signatures demanding his resignation, traffic was blocked, like I said, on Christmas Eve, along North Michigan Avenue. People demanding that Rahm Emanuel resign in the wake of this ongoing scandal in Chicago. And there were some rumblings, actually, before Christmas about a protest perchance, at O'Hare International Airport, which would be a very big fucking deal. Post 9-11, we don't tolerate shit at airports. Misbehavior at airports is not something that is welcome. But Saul Alinsky, maybe you remember that name from the 2012 re-election campaign of Barack Obama, because Newt Gingrich and other Republican shit stains were running then kept talking about Obama as a Saul Alinsky radical. And Saul Alinsky did write a book called Rules for Radicals, but it was about political engagement and involvement. And if you actually read Rules for Radicals, you will see that most of its organizing tips are very mainstream. That if you want to change the Democratic Party, he says to people who are protesting in the streets, in Grant Park in Chicago during the 1968 Democratic National Convention, where my dad, who was a cop at the time, cracked open hippie heads in the park, he says to them, if you want to change the Democratic Party, be the delegates. Don't just scream at the delegates. Go and be the delegates. Organize and take over. And what 
reminded me of Saul Alinsky reading about what's going on in Chicago right now is that he once planned a protest at O'Hare Airport because the then mayor of Chicago, Richard J. Daley, was backing out of promises that he had made to civil rights activists, betraying them, double-crossing them. And so Saul Alinsky, who was very smart about planning protests, planned a protest at O'Hare Airport where they were not going to picket, they were not going to march, they were going to pack every bathroom in the airport and have a shit-in protest so that people getting off the airplanes at O'Hare Airport way, way back in the 70s, way, way back then in the 60s, would have nowhere to relieve themselves after they landed. And what were the cops going to do? Knock on every stall and demand proof that you were shitting for real and not just pretending to shit to shut down the bathrooms at the airport? And just the threat of this protest, this shit-in protest. And they did reconnaissance, and they lined up the people, they organized the action, just the threat of this protest, designed by Saul Alinsky, brilliant, brilliantly conceived protest by Saul Alinsky, brought the mayor around. The mayor reversed himself, re-reversed himself, because he was engaged in a double cross, and it became a quadruple cross at that point, and the mayor made good on the promises that he had made. The civil rights activists in Chicago was in the 60s. And Saul Alinsky got him to do it. Activists got him to do it by targeting O'Hare Airport. Now, I'm not saying that post-9-11 targeting an airport is wise, but I am saying if we all pick up rules for radicals, or read Playboy Magazine's interview with Saul Alinsky from 1972, there are tips in there about how you force a mayor to do something that you want that mayor to do. In Richard J. Daly's case, make good on that promise. In Rahm Emanuel's case, resign. And that is indeed what needs to happen. Elected officials, white Democrats in big machine cities like Chicago, need to know that they're going to lose their jobs too if they don't exercise their authority over their police departments and rein them the fuck in and end this reign of terror on communities of color in big cities all across this country. Sem þú kvíslaðir af mér í ól Sem þú kvíslaðir af mér í ól Sem þú kvíslaðir af mér í ól Good morning, I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and we begin this morning with the conviction of former officer Daniel Holtzclaw. He is the 29-year-old former Oklahoma City police officer who on Thursday was found guilty of sexual assault against eight women. Holtzclaw stood accused by 13 women, all of them African-American and one of them just 17 years old, and all alleging that Holtzclaw encountered and sexually assaulted them in his role as a police officer. He now faces up to 236 years for his crimes. Now, we first told you about the allegations against Holtzclaw in September of 2014. This week, BuzzFeed's Jessica Testa went to Oklahoma County, where prosecutors presented a case against police officer Daniel Holtzclaw, who is alleged to have sexually assaulted eight black women. 
Testa recounts the stomach-churning testimony of a 57-year-old grandmother who says she was violated, molested, and forced to perform oral sex all during what she initially believed was a routine traffic stop. According to Testa's reporting, Holtzclaw allegedly used his position as a police officer to identify potential targets who posed the least risk as targets of assault. By allegedly focusing on poor black women with criminal records, Holtzclaw kept himself from being caught. So we brought you that report, and then we, like much of mainstream media, turned our attention to other stories. And much of the news that we've covered during the past year has dealt with race and policing, from South Carolina to Baltimore to Chicago. The nation's been riveted by video images of black men's suffering and death at the hands of police. And the nation was appalled to see black women and girls treated in similar ways. But somehow, despite all the public conversation about race and policing, there was relatively little discussion of Officer Holtzclaw and his violence against women that he was sworn to protect and serve, but who he instead harmed and violated. Why the silences? Well, one reason may be because the familiar stories of race, rape, and criminal justice tend to be dominated by three characters. Black men, who are variously decried as either dangerous brutes or defended as wrongly accused. White women, either understood as innocent victims whose honor must be defended or disparaged as dishonest accusers whose lies bring wrathful vengeance. And white men, narrated as either righteous or vile defenders of white women's sexual chastity. That story of black men... White women and white men is what Harper Lee's fictional lawyer Atticus Finch deconstructs into Kill a Mockingbird. That story of black men, white women, and white men is the plot line Roy Bryant and J.W. Roy Bryant and J.W. Millam told themselves as they dragged Emmett Till from his family's home and beat, murdered, and discarded him on a dark Mississippi night. The villains and the heroes may change depending on where the storyteller stands. But the ancient tale of race, rape, and American criminal justice consistently features these three figures. Black men, white women, and white men. Notice anyone missing? This is Rosa Parks. She's often referred to as the mother of the civil rights movement because she initiated the Montgomery bus boycott in 1955. She is also the survivor of attempted rape. In 1931, when she was just 18 years old and working as a housekeeper, her white employer attempted to sexually assault her. And she wrote in a detailed letter discovered decades later, he offered me a drink of whiskey, which I promptly and vehemently refused. He moved nearer to me and put his hand on my waist. I was very frightened by now. This is Reese Taylor. In 1944, she was a 24-year-old wife and mother walking home along a rural Alabama road with two friends after a late church service. A car pulled up and seven armed white men grabbed Reese, drove off with her, raped her repeatedly, and left her by the side of the road. The activists sent by the Montgomery NAACP to help Taylor ultimately bring a case against her attackers? Rosa Parks. Now, the men were never convicted, but the Taylor case was one part of a massive international campaign that Mrs. Parks was organizing to address issues of race, sexual violence, and injustice in the Jim Crow South in 1944 a full decade before she refused to give up her seat on the bus. But this part of Parks' history, and of our own, is only dimly and intermittently remembered. Stereotypes of black women as inherently promiscuous, wanton, and sexually immoral are embedded cultural tropes that allow us to ignore the suffering of sisters over the decades. The truth is black women are the missing protagonists in the stories we tell about race, rape, and American criminal justice. But the unpunished rape of black women like the unpunished lynching of black men long served 
as a form of racial terrorism. Which brings us to Daniel Holtzclaw, who was betting on the vulnerability of black women he attacked to keep them silent. Assistant District Attorney Geiger said of Holtzclaw, not only is this individual stopping women who fit a profile of members of our society who are confronted rightly or wrongly by police officers all the time, he identifies a vulnerable society that without exception, except one, have an attitude for what good is it going to do? He's a police officer. Who's going to believe me? More than a year after bravely coming forward, the survivors of Holtzclaw's predatory serial rapes can now say they told their stories and they were believed. AC, what do we got? All right, so I'm going to start off with Black Lives Matter. That's going to bridge a little bit into Bernie Sanders. But I'm going to start off with this email we got from Kay. And Kay says, hello, police brutality and abuse of power is a problem. I would even say is a systematic problem. It must be addressed. I work for a large healthcare system in an urban area, and I see victims of crime come through the doors of the emergency department every day. Black men, women, and children injured are ultimately dying from violence. That violence is, 99% of the time, not committed by police or even white people. It is other black people. The movement should look at cleaning up our own backyard. Yes, I agree. Black lives matter. I just think they should matter all of the time, not only when a police officer is involved. How can I tell someone to treat me better than I'm treating myself? Keep up the conversation. K. Police brutality doesn't nullify, one doesn't nullify the other. They should both be addressed. So I, I really I really get irritated when I hear that argument of like, well, look at your own backyard, you know, look at what's happening, look at black on black crime or domestic violence or what have you. But that doesn't nullify the fact that we're being killed and brutalized by a community of people that we pay to protect us and serve us. So I don't know. Yeah, I have to say, like, I can't roll my eyes far enough back in my head Try it, when I say. hear those comments. Yes. Because one... When it comes to race, we suddenly lose our ability to have nuance. Um, no one would say that we should not be particularly upset by what happened in September 11th when we were bombed by terrorists because white people in America also kill white people all the time and, in fact, kill way more than than were killed in September 11th. We would never say that because it doesn't make sense. Like it, There are differing degrees, and being killed by the state is very different than a criminal. One does not expect the police to treat the people the same as one expects a criminal. But also, it's just insulting that somehow black folks are not mourning the deaths of their loved ones who are being killed daily in these communities, that black folks are not fighting in these communities daily against that violence as well. I just, I, I don't understand why suddenly we, we lose the ability to have nuance and you only lose that ability if you're seeing black folks as some amorphous being who don't really care if their kids are being killed or their loved ones are being killed. They only care if they're being killed by white cops. I, that's absurd. Right. Right. I actually just finished reading the book that nails this issue to the wall and 
I can't believe it hasn't been as discussed as much as, say, Don Hossie Coates' book from the past year. It's called Ghetto Side by Jill Leovi, uh, who's an L.A. Times reporter. And what she points out is that both the killing of young black men by police and the killing of young black men by each other are both issues of policing. And that so many young black people and people of color are being, you know, shot and injured and through these, this over-policing of stopping everyone for minor infractions, tensions flare up, and you have these shootings. But there is also a, and it sounds perverse to say it, a chronic problem of under-policing under in black communities and that nobody cares if black people kill each other. So there's no thorough, there's no resources, there's no funding, there's no dedication to solving these crimes. So killing black people is a crime of virtual impunity. Mm-hmm. And because of that, the rates of murder we see in these low-income black communities today are identical to the rates of murder you saw in frontier towns in the Old West, the same as you see in Arab ghettos in Israel that are totally marginalized and cut off from the government there. And so when you have a community that has no trustworthy relationship with police, you have this fratricidal killing because this is the natural state of man to kill each other. And that it is only if you are recognized as a citizen by the state that you give up your power to kill someone and take retribution yourself. Like, if someone wronged me, I would sue them. I would call the police. When my apartment got broken into, I called the police that filed the report because I'm a white citizen in America and the police protect and serve me. Therefore, I have surrendered my right to seek any retribution for myself. In the black community, you are not being serviced by the police in the same way. So, therefore, the culture in that community is, well, we have to solve this ourselves, which in any community black, white, Arab, Chinese, will then escalate into violence because without government, the natural state of man is to seek retribution and, and violence kill each other. So what you have is you have all these conservatives who are saying, what about black-on-black crime? And then, unfortunately, I think the response of the Black Lives Matter at this moment has been to say, well, that's just a distraction. We need to talk about police. You know, stop trying to change the subject. It's the same subject. And this this ghetto side book, which like everyone should read, it changed how I think about the whole thing. Really, wow. I think nails it to the wall. Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. Black Lives Matter really started as a love note to our people. It was really important that we establish a really broad notion of who is black America these days. We have to see this as a global movement. We can't see our issues as just domestic issues.
aftermath of the acquittal of George Zimmerman in the murder of Trayvon Martin, I know I personally felt like I got punched in the gut. Living black in America, we do know that it's rare that justice is served for black communities. The other thing we were hearing was, this is a terrible tragedy, and so what we need to do is X, Y, and Z. X, Y, and Z being pull up your pants. X, Y, and Z being we need to vote, we need better education, we need stronger families. But all of those things really blame black communities for our own conditions. I think the mere fact we, there are folks who have to say that, like I matter. That means there's inherently something that's telling me that I'm not. Let us live, let us explore, let us, you know, be able to live within our bodies and be comfortable. The issue was never just about Mike Brown. It was about a, an endemic system, an endemic sort of history of police violence. There can't be economic justice in this country unless there's racial justice in this country. The refusal of folks in the U.S. to see what it is that we are doing around race um, recreates these structures of segregation. When uh, cops kill young people, anyone, um, and we blame just the cop, we're making a big mistake because it is the system that created the violence. We in this country have all been infected by our history of racial inequality. I think we're all compromised by this narrative of racial difference that was created during the time of slavery. And if we're going to free ourselves, if we're going to cure this infection, we're going to have to talk about these errors in our history that we have not yet addressed. The constitutional amendments after the, during and after the Civil War were supposed to free uh, African-American slaves. It did something for about 10 years. Then there was a North-South Compact, which essentially granted the, the former slave-owning states the right to do whatever they wanted. And what they did was criminalize black life. The capacity to kill is actually a precondition for the capacity to incarcerate. And so we have to address both of those problems. And in order to do that, we have to think about the entire social order. What kind of economy do we want to live in? And how can we organize it in the richest country in the history of the world? The function of law enforcement in the United States is to police uh, the lines or perimeters, as you would say, around sex and gender and around sex and sexuality as much as they are around race. So one of the things that we've been trying to talk about is how the exclusion of women and girls actually undermines the ability to see the structural dimension of the problem. We have a community of folks that are oppressed in many ways in, in black and brown communities by different state systems in different ways. We can't think that we can um, empower them in these communities by saying we're just going to empower the men in the communities because we're just sort of extending, reflecting, mirroring the sort of patriarchal framework that says that um, men are front and women are second. And that doesn't, that's not what we need. That's not where we're at. We saw folks from South Africa, folks from Ireland, folks from all over the world sending messages. Come, 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 come.
What's important to us in Black Lives Matter is that we are elevating and cultivating the leadership of folks who have not been included in the conversation. That includes black trans women, that includes black immigrant women, black disabled folks, black incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people. The way that we understand how movements happen in this country is behind one charismatic leader. And it's really hard for people to wrap their heads around a movement that is full of leaders. You got to go in just like a jazz musician trying to learn something from the younger generation. You know you have a certain genuine humility and a certain willingness to learn and listen. If we want a full democracy in this country, we can't just have people following one person. Everyone has to feel like they have a stake in shaping the kind of world that we live in. Radical revolutionary movements or movements of revolt are unseen by the mainstream society uh, until they erupt. We need to hear the voices of young people because the black freedom movement is not going to remain alive if it's not transmitted and bequeathed through the younger generation. When we talk about black liberation being intrinsic to everybody's liberation, we're really talking about how systems in this country have been not only built off of the backs of black people and, and exploited labor, but certainly have been crafted to exclude black people. And so if we're able to dismantle those systems, everybody has a chance, a better chance of living a better life. We want to create a different kind of movement culture. We think it's important, we think we need it, and we don't think that we can survive without it. If you got the nerve, lash out for your just desserts. It's not just the words. Some of y'all heads up in the cloud. I'ma bring y'all back to earth. It's black, black to burn. Bullshit y'all talking about. Out your mouth, I'm not concerned. Cause y'all got the nerve. It's y'all turned like Detroit Red. When his head had an ultra perk. The long walk, I burned your bare heels. So throw on your boots. The game camouflage like army suits. But I can see it more clear. Cause I came with the coupe in here. Bring the alarm and form the truth. More than a year after 12-year-old Tamir Rice was fatally shot by a Cleveland police officer after that officer was found to have had a dismal performance record with handguns and previous job with another police department. After a municipal court judge who was asked by activists to review the case found probable cause for indictment on murder charges, making a recommendation to the county prosecutor. After the Justice Department released a damning report on the Cleveland Police Department finding a widespread use of excessive force. And after protesters around the country took the streets to demand justice for black Americans killed by law enforcement. After all that, today, what many had seen as inevitable finally came to pass. Prosecutor Timothy McGinty announced that a grand jury declined to indict the two officers involved in the shooting of Tamir Rice, who was carrying a pellet gun outside a public recreation center when someone called 911. The grand jury's decision was widely expected, especially after three outside reports, which were commissioned and made public by the prosecutor's office, found the officers had acted reasonably. At a press conference today, Prosecutor McGinty said both he and the grand jury came to the same conclusion. Given this perfect storm of human error, mistakes and miscommunications by all involved that day, the evidence did not indicate criminal conduct by police. Believing he was about to be shot was a mistaken yet reasonable belief given the high-stress circumstances and his police training. He had reason to fear for his life. 
While grand jury testimony is typically sealed, the prosecutor's office did release a written statement from the shooter, Officer Timothy Lohman, which tells his side of the story, including the claims that Rice appeared to be over 18 years old and about 185 pounds, that he commanded Rice multiple times to show his hands, even after seeing him reach into his waistband, and that he had tried to get to the back of the police cruiser before firing. Compare all that to what we see in the surveillance video of the encounter, which appears to unfold in a matter of seconds. Tamir Rice's mother, Samaria, responded to the grand jury's decision in a statement, quote, in a time in which a non-indictment for two police officers who have killed an unarmed black child is business as usual, we mourn for Tamir and for all the black people who have been killed by police without justice. I don't want my child to have died for nothing, and I refuse to let his legacy or his name be ignored. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, tell Attorneys General Loretta Lynch to get justice for Tamir Rice. Cuyahoga County Prosecutor Timothy McGinty's conduct in the grand jury supposedly seeking an indictment for Tamir Rice's murder was, to use a generous word, atypical. The joke about being able to indict a ham sandwich didn't develop for no reason. The purpose of the grand jury process is to present just enough evidence that ordinary people say... Yeah, sure, that person might have done it. There should be a trial to find out. McGinty actually presented experts that exonerated the target of the grand jury. This is unprecedented and would never be done in a case for someone who wasn't law enforcement. The resulting lack of an indictment means that justice is no longer possible at the local level, so Tamir's family is petitioning federal authorities. Tamir's cousin, Latanya Goldsby, has a petition at Change.org simply titled Justice for Tamir Rice, asking the Department of Justice to investigate McGinty and not allow the murder of a 12-year-old boy in broad daylight to go unpunished. Of the failed grand jury, Goldsby says, quote, My family is saddened and disappointed, but we are not surprised, unquote. And she cites precedent for the request that needs your signature of support. From the petition, quote, The Department of Justice has launched independent investigations into police killings of civilians before. Last year, they launched one in response to the killing of John Crawford, who, like Tamir, had a toy gun in his hand while shopping at Walmart when police rushed in and shot him to death. A Change.org petition helped make that investigation happen, and that's why I need your signature. So please sign and share the family's petition. We can't allow the grand jury to be the final word on the murder of a 12-year-old boy. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If justice for all people matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about the Rice family's petition via social media so that others in your network can also sign and support. Can you stand up and be counting? There's a body in a crowd. Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed? Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now. Because that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change.
So the way the United States uh, police officers and uh, other civilized countries handle crime is a little different. Um, here in the United States, we like to shoot people. We like to shoot them dead. Uh, in the rest of Europe, that does not really how it goes down. I mean, recently we just had a, a terrorist attack in the UK. I'm going to show you that in a second. And the cops seem to handle that just fine uh, without having to kill someone. Not the way our cops roll. So, uh, first off, um, let me give you some stats on this, and then I'll show you video after video, UK and then versus uh, U.S. cops, okay? Uh, first of all, American police in 2014 were 18 times more lethal than Danish police. Well, they just had to do it. Well, that's got to be a high. I mean, the Danish police are probably uh, really, really placid. There's probably no crime there. How about uh, Finland? That's got to be lower, right? No. Uh, U.S. cops were 100 times more lethal than Finnish police. A hundred times, right? Uh, and uh, the list keeps going on. Uh, so now a lot of times in America, it happens to be uh, blacks and Latinos that get killed. They are overrepresented in the number of people killed by cops. They're most especially overrepresented in unarmed people killed by cops. But even if you take that huge percentage out, and you just talk about white people killed by cops in America, get a little of this. White Americans are 26 times more likely to die by police gunfire than Germans. It's not, oh, well, you know, those European countries, are, uh, they're all the same race. You know what I'm saying, wink, wink. Uh, so uh, that's why they don't have to do it. No, 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 our white people get shot a lot more, too. It's because our cops are trigger happy. Again, the video will show it to you in a second, but the numbers are not anecdotal. They are overwhelming. See, it turns out that there's a different way to handle things if you're the Germans, the uh, Danish, the Finnish, and all over the uh, Europe. In fact, let's go to the uh, UK and do a comp comparison here. Fatal shots by U.S. police since 2013 when someone is wielding a blade uh, or other weapons, but not, uh, a, not a gun, okay? More than 575 people killed, okay, uh, by U.S. cops since 2013. In the UK, there's uh, more people who wield knives because of tight gun control. They have less guns, so more knives. So uh, the UK cops obviously must have killed more than 575 because there's so much more of it over there. Here's how many they killed since 2013, people attacking with a knife. One. Us, 575. UK, one. Okay, speaking of the UK, now let's uh, not just talk about knives, but all police killings. Uh, as of this year, okay, in the UK, police have killed one person. Uh, this year, as of September 1st. In the U.S., we've killed 776 in that same time period. You think there's perhaps a little discrepancy between how we train our police and how Europe trains its police? Okay, if you're not sold yet, let's go to the videotape. First, uh, we're going to show you a video from the, uh, a terrorist attack in the U.K. over the weekend. This guy's already cut two people up. There's a ton of blood on the ground. When the police come... Uh, and this is what happens. So uh, they did taser him. The first taser didn't work. Uh, the second one did. 
They kick away the knife. They arrest him. They didn't shoot him with guns. They didn't execute him. Wow. That's amazing, right? They didn't immediately kill him. Now, let's talk uh, about U.S. cops, and let's show you a videotape there. Over the weekend, same uh, time period, here in the U.S., in Miami, there was a bank robber uh, who had a blade, just like that guy had a blade. Let's see how that turned out. Yeah, dead. Unlike the UK terrorist, he had not stabbed anyone and was not lunging towards the police. The UK terrorist started lunging at the police. They still didn't shoot him. Okay. In our case, he's just standing there. The cops execute him on the spot. Let's go to Laquan McDonald in Chicago. This was over a year ago. The video was just recently released. Take a look. He's 17 years old. Yes, he has a blade in his right hand, as you can see there. Casually walking, spin move, boom, executed. See the smoke going up uh, from his body? Shot 16 times. 14 of the bullets entered him when he was already dead on the ground. So is there another way to handle this? It looks like they're still shooting him. They're still shooting him. This is what U.S. police do. Now, you wonder why there are protests against U.S. police? Is there another way? Of course there's another way. Now, I'm going to show you one more set of videos here. This is a homeless person in San Francisco. Again, some sort of blade on the homeless person. There is an army of police here. Could they have handled it in a different way? Let's take a look. Now, in case that wasn't clear enough because they pointed down when the shooting began, there's another angle on that video. And I'm sorry to show you all this, but we have to face the truth here in America, which is our cops are trained to kill, they're licensed to kill, and they get away with it almost every single time. They're almost applauded for this kind of barbaric activity. Here, watch it again. So many fucking cops for this one guy. What the fuck did he do? What the fuck? It looks like a gangland slaying to me. <laughs> Do you guys really, does anyone believe that the 14 cops there were all in grave danger? At any moment, that homeless person could have killed them all. They had to put the person down. Or the guy in Miami, or Laquan, the 17-year-old in Chicago, or the dozens of other videos that we've shown you, or the hundreds of cases that we just talked about. No, no, no. There's a reason why our cops kill more, because they're taught to kill more. In Europe, they have three years of training for the police. Most of that time is spent on figuring out how to de-escalate conflicts. Of course, they spend a lot of time on... You know, what happens if the if the criminal is escalating the conflict? What happens if you're in danger? They spend a lot of time training. On average, we spend about 19 weeks training. And by a 20 to 1 ratio, that is, uh, they're taught what you do when there is conflict, right? Only 5% of the time do they talk about de-escalating the conflict. How do you bring the conflict down? The other 95% of the time, they talk about, like, how do you protect yourself? How do you shoot them? How do you kill them? Let's talk about 
firing your weapon and firing it. They could kill you at any minute, any second. You're always in danger. Shoot, shoot, shoot. And that's what we have. Cops in America. Shoot, shoot, shoot. When are we going to get it through our thick skulls that we got to do better training of the cops and teach them that they are supposed to be brave. They are supposed to do better policing. They are supposed to respect human life. Even if it's a bank robber, even if it's, oh, God forbid, a homeless person, even if it's a 17-year-old black kid, yes, you're supposed to respect their life. Even if they have a blade, I'm not saying that they were in no danger, but did anybody think that all those executions were warranted? And then when you ask the cops, can you do a little bit better? Oh, why are you so anti-cop? Because that isn't decent policing. I'm not against police. Apparently, they do a wonderful job in Europe. I'm against training the police to execute the citizens. And if you're not against that, I, I, there's something wrong with you. I know. Do you enjoy that? You those videos? Do they give you a rush? Do you, do you do you feel some sort of vicarious pleasure out of that? Do you feel like they're getting guys you don't like? What is it about that that makes you want to defend that? No, we have to fix it. We have to get better training, and if you don't, there's something wrong with us as a society. We're supposed to live in a democracy. Those cops are supposed to represent us. They get paid by us, the taxpayers. It's incumbent upon us to give them new rules and new directions, because this is horrific. We just heard clips featuring Democracy Now! with the news of the arrest of a Chicago officer after the release of the video of the shooting of Laquan McDonald. Dan Savage spoke about the power and importance of the Black Lives Matter movement in demanding results from elected officials. Melissa Harris-Perry explained the way that women of color always seem to get left out of conversations about rape. The show about race thoroughly debunked the bullshit what-about-black-on-black crime talking point that is intended to trick people into derailing important conversations about systemic racism. The Laura Flanders show gave us a retrospective of their coverage of the Black Lives Matter movement. All In with Chris Hayes explained the injustice of the non-indictment of the officer in the Tamir Rice case. And then finally, the Young Turks compiled a breakdown of how dramatically differently U.S. police officers react to dangerous situations as compared with European officers, and then the stats to bear out the results of those differences. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Jay, it's Ryan from Phoenix. I'm calling to respond to your call for voicemails in response to the moldability of human nature, which for me as well was the most interesting part of that podcast. And for me, I like to reach across to my conservative counterpoints as much as possible and be their favorite little intellectual liberal who can kind of just work through them through the question answer process of just kind of exploring their ideas and it is human nature and culture that i think is one of the most profounding fundamentals that that split the liberal and and conservative arguments for example the idea that culture is so moldable and so dynamic that we find different cultures that 
uh, resonate with humans all across the globe. And these cultures are quite different, and they lead us to believe in different things, and you know, everything from religion to politics to, you know, these things will help shape different ideas across the globe. And there's not really anything fundamentally different about the humans from one corner of the globe to the other. But what manifests, due to the fact that they have different cultures and different religious beliefs, are, are drastically different. And so, if you can get a, a, a conservative to let go of their need to conserve the type of religious or cultural expectations that they have with very whitewashed, very through a white person's lens of what culture should be and what human nature should be and how people should treat each other and how they should dress and act and behave and talk and all that and with the superiority complex for white people, if you, uh, if you help them see that without even you know bringing up racism or they're going to throw out the race card, blah, 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 you just help them see that how moldable culture is and how it doesn't devastate the society and just let people be who they are and let them be happy with who they are without trying to control their culture or who they are, then you get a very much more liberal, relaxed perspective on things without trying to have that cultural control uh, aspect to the religious right or even other uh, aspects of conservatism, um, and I think that it really helps loosen them up and um, and will gain you some respect points from your uh, conservative counterpoints whenever you have a conversation with them about this. Um, that's been my experience, and thanks for the show, Jay. Bye. Hey, Jay, this is Quiet Franklin. Uh, so you want to know where I'm calling from, uh, Triangle area of North Carolina. And uh, I was calling in response to your question about how behavior is molded by the way things are framed. This is a really strong area of interest for me because I um, have a BA in psychology and psycho uh, philosophy has always been a very important subject to me. And the, the confluence of the two in the sense that I think that uh, how people frame things philosophically, whether they call it a philosophy or not, is... Uh, very important to the way they process life. And uh, I grew up in a small town in the South, and I've seen plenty of examples of uh, people in my area where I grew up that would definitely vote or, and have been voting uh, since I grew up there, and they're not in their economic best interest. And the reason for that, I think, is the framing in which they grow up as well as the circumstances in which they grow up. Because I believe a lot of these people are working class and poor, or they come from people who are working class and poor, and they are, from a psychological sense, entering the needs pyramid. I don't know if you've heard about Maslow and the needs pyramid. At the bottom of the pyramid being safety, food, uh, shelter, that kind of thing. Uh, and what I'm calling the fear-based needs. And as such, I think there's a preference in the way they cognitively process calls for strong leadership because, you know, it's, I think it's a part of our human nature that we come from ancestors who survived. And the way they survived is by paying attention to 
the signals in their environment that signify to them what would allow them to survive. And having a strong leader is, is helpful in that process, I, I think. That's, you know, the, the case for the strong father that uh, a lot of conservatives point to. And as David Pakman, I think, has pointed out, they have a general preference for that type of leadership style, which is the strong father figure type. And so, philosophically, my theory, and you probably have heard this maybe from other people, because I haven't done a lot of research on political theory, is that for conservatives, I think their primary the crux of their arguments is that the system is fine. Systems are fine, the ones that exist. And if there are unequal outcomes, it's the fault of the individual or the group. And for liberals, progressives, I think we tend to see people as being equal. And so if there are unequal outcomes, it's the system that is set up improperly. So I think to greatly oversimplify possibly the, the difference between the liberals and conservatives, is that view of the system versus the person or the group. And so when these people come up in poor circumstances or they have parents, ancestors that came up in poor circumstances, they learn to fend for themselves and to stick together and against uh, certain things that they perceive as threats from the outside. They grew up in churches, a lot of conservative churches in the areas, uh, in the area that I grew up in. And just in, in politics, the conservative churches emphasized that the system, and in the case of Christian churches, the system of salvation and life rewards and punishments is fine as it is. It's the system is the system. And uh, they clearly believe in God helps those who help themselves. And they are the authority on what God wants. And so people have learned through their, well, for lack of a more tactful way to say it, brainwashing, that they really need to pay attention to what the preachers say, what their teachers say, their parents say, because it's all centered around survival or not surviving. And if things bad, anything bad happens, then it's your fault as an individual. So when they go to vote, they're going to vote for people who seem to be emphasizing that system, the system that's in place, and they are suspicious of people who will want to give something away, especially to those who they, in their view, have not earned it, such as uh, the poor, because, you know, if you, of course, if you're poor and the system is fine, you're poor because it's your fault and you're not doing something quite right. There's a whole bunch of other things that paying attention to the system over the individual makes such a difference, that type of framing. Strength is res respected, weakness is punished. When you talk about reverence for the system over the people, Never ask for help. Don't trust others that are willing to help or, or try to help. Don't ask for handouts and so forth. The prevalence of parents that utilize corporal punishment, teachers that wanted to use corporal punishment, all are, are excellent examples of how it's the system is fine and as an individual, you need to obey the system, fit into the system, and in order to survive, you just face whatever obstacles you face, and that'll make you stronger. And there's a strong mythos around that in the South and, and in conservative, conservative circles, I believe. I'm not sure how long this has gone on, but thanks very much, Jay, for all the great work you do. And uh, look forward to hearing other comments on this. Take care. Hi, Jay. This is Rick from Scranton, Pennsylvania. 
and finished listening to your episode on Climate Summit, and I wanted to respond to the uh, the comment on the built environment and how we influence that as designers. And um, my profession is as an architect, so I deal with this certainly every day. And I noticed that the only people who are governing uh, what gets built, when it gets built, how it gets built, are the people with the most money in society, large businesses, to a certain extent governments, but the average person has no influence on how their built environment uh, comes into being. And it does influence so much of our lives, you know, how we travel, how we live, how we interact with uh, every structure that we that we go into is, is designed and you know, with someone's vision in mind, and sometimes that's the architect, but in reality we have uh, a limited amount of freedom uh, because we have to, you know, design to, you know, an owner's needs, and uh, that person is whoever's paying, and buildings cost a lot of money, a lot of money, and there's very few people that, that get to really wield those uh, those major decisions about, about how we all live. And I just kind of wanted to throw that out there. I don't know how much it adds, but uh, I've been wanting to call in for a while and figure this was something in my wheelhouse that I could comment on. So thanks again, Jay, for everything uh, you do, and keep up the good work. Thanks. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. And today, I have a special bonus action for you. This has to do with the TPP. Hopefully, you're all familiar with what the TPP is. It's the big, gross, corporate takeover uh, international trade agreement that's going on. The Obama administration is pushing it. All the Republicans are on board. That should uh, throw up all of your red flags there. And so this is coming from the Flush the TPP campaign website, obviously opposed to the deal. And they say that, According to the Federal Register, the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative announced on December 28th that it, quote, is seeking public comments on the impact of the TPP agreement on U.S. employment, including labor markets, unquote. The open comment period extends until January 13th. That is coming right up, so please take action immediately. It is critical that as many people as possible write to them about this. After all, in 2014, millions of public comments poured into the FCC and saved the Internet in terms of net neutrality. So uh, this is absolutely worth your time. Please take action. I'm going to link to this particular campaign page that explains exactly how to uh, how to leave your comments. However, to make it really simple for yourself, if you just Google TPP public comment, you will absolutely find the information on how to comment, uh, what the process is, and so on. Uh, so no worries about not being able to figure out how to do it. If you can figure out how to Google those like three or four words, you'll be golden.
Again, I just want to point out that the voicemails we've been receiving have been fantastic. Please keep those coming in. Uh, hopefully the, what we just heard inspired even more thoughts from you. The number again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who have already supported the show through the years by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, ever. oh, wait a second. I just realized that by the time you hear my voice again, I will have crossed the 10-year anniversary of the show. Obviously, I'm not very good at marking big dates like that. I mean, I literally just almost forgot to mention it. And I certainly didn't throw myself a party. I didn't even put out like a press release, which seems like the sort of thing people would do for stuff like that. So I guess that's it. I've mentioned it. Uh, The occasion has been marked. Anyways, uh, of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Get even more from us by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com And it's a crying shame How we get so trained